Hi everyone and a very warm welcome to this episode of the second series of the Learning Journeys podcast from Lacuna Learning. Can't quite believe we made it through series one and here we are at the start of season two as we try to make our way through the difficult second album. Thanks so much everyone for listening and subscribing to our first series. We had an amazing response and we just um, really hope you enjoy this, this next series as well. We hope you are all keeping really well in these difficult times. In today's episode, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by GB Paracanoe athlete Hope Gordon. Hope has had such an interesting journey to where she is now, so I won't ruin the story by giving away too much at the moment. She's originally from Rogart in Sutherland in the far north of Scotland. She did loads of sport growing up. She danced and learned to play the bagpipes, so she's a very talented lady. I first met Hope couple of years ago and she was just starting to get into canoeing and um, we had a day messing around with the Swiss balls, um, a bit of falling in the canal if we're honest. Um, that was with Richard Cheatham who was on the end of the last season uh, and at her coach Anton. Um, she is undoubtedly the smiliest, most enthusiastic person that I know so I'm delighted to have her along to share her journey so thanks very much for your time Hope. <laughs> thanks for having me <laughs> see she's already giggling and smiling there we go we're, we're underway so by way of warming us up today and the now regular feature on the pods um, the question I'm asking everyone if you could go on an adventure anywhere in the world where would you go who would you go with and what would you do um, so right now to be honest I'd quite like to just go home and see my family friends um, but one place that I would really like to go is New Zealand. I've heard from everybody that it's like Scotland, but with better weather, which is just a win-win situation. And I would probably go with my best friend, Karen, who we did some interrailing together a few years back and it was just like the best month ever. So I just think it would be a laugh. Oh, you have set the bar very high for season two, I think, there. That's that's a great one. Yeah, definitely on my list of places to go to as well, get off to New Zealand at some point, when we're allowed to go there, of course, again. But for the purpose of the pod, you are allowed, there are no COVID restrictions in place, so I'm glad you went to New Zealand and had a bit, bit of a good time there. Right, where do we start? Let's just go right back to the beginning. Could you tell people a bit about what it was like <laughs> for you growing up in Sutherland, in the, the very far north of Scotland, uh, and maybe what some of your early sport experiences were yeah so it was well it's kind of a bit different looking back on it now because at the time I didn't know anything different so I didn't realize how lucky I was and I just thought it was it was just home but yeah it was absolutely amazing it was I don't really remember spending very much time inside so I was always just outside and kind of came in to eat and go to bed and that was that was a bit about it really um, so yeah, I grew up with horses, so I was always out on the horses and just doing lots of different sports really. Uh, I didn't have one particular sport that I did or that I was good at, I just sort of did lots of different after school activities and played sport like within school as well. So yeah, just outside lots and just doing lots of sport. Sounds kind of idyllic. Sounds like this like great place to start and run around in the fields, get into mischief and uh, having that space and that freedom to do that, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Sport, big part of your life. Obviously, you're now a full-time athlete. I guess living in that part of the world, what was it like for you? What kind of opportunities were opened for you playing sport up in that part of the world? Um, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit, actually. So I did 
regular Highland dancing, which um, sort of kind of goes with the location, I guess. Um, but I absolutely loved that and did that lots. A lot of stuff we did kind of within school. Um, I did some swimming when I was when I was younger. I played like basketball and football and a bit of badminton and yeah, there was there was actually for quite a small place and not very many people and not too many children really. There was actually quite a lot of opportunities available. And then looking back on the early experiences, swimming became the big sport. How did that all come to be? Um, yeah, so swimming was definitely my main focus and it kind of came around a bit by accident, really. So the club that I kind of started with was called Golsby Swimming Club and it was very much a kind of low level, you enjoy swimming, go and swim, make friends and that, that kind of thing. And they weren't even affiliated to race. And then Golsby Swimming Pool got shot for quite, quite a long time. And when I went to high school or I went to Donick Academy I then joined uh, another swimming club purely because that pool was open and that club was an affiliated club so then that was when I kind of started to to go a bit more often so I went like a few times a week rather than just once a week and that was when I first started swimming as a kind of able-bodied child if you like. (laughs) So you just hinted at it there. You said as an able-bodied child. We now know that that was a, d- a different path that, than you've had. As I know the story, and you can just tell, film the story for everyone else at home, one day you came from school with a sore leg. Is that how it all started? Um, yeah, pretty much. So I was due to go to swimming, actually, and one of my friends who also swam, um, her mum gave us a lift and... Um, well, sorry, rewinding a bit. During, earlier on in that day, I was doing PE at school and my leg just got really, really sore. And this wasn't a, a unusual thing because I had a sore leg, or a sore left knee since I was about four years old. And the doctors always just put it down to growing pains. And then this one day it just got really sore and the teacher said, just sit on the side and once it's better, just join back in. And I remember two of my friends like having an arm around them and they kind of carried me back into the changing rooms and then I just hobbled around school the rest of the day. And then we went swimming and couldn't kick my leg at all in the water that night. Didn't really think too much of it. And then my mum picked me up after swimming um, and I hobbled out to the car and she was like, what on earth have you done? And I was like, well, nothing, like literally nothing. My leg just really, really hurts. And then I went to pipe band practice after that. And once again, I still couldn't walk. And I just thought that I would kind of go to bed that night and wake up the morning um, like absolutely fine. But unfortunately that didn't happen and the the pain kind of continued. And then we went to, obviously went to the doctors and everything and they just didn't really know what was, what was going on. And then I started having cheese crutches and yeah, it, just for about a year, I just had this leg that was really, really painful and we didn't, we didn't know what was wrong with it and the doctors didn't didn't know what was happening either so I I guess like swimming was sort of happened quite naturally because I kind of went from being able to do whatever I wanted to not being able to walk kind of overnight but swimming was the one sport that I could still that I was doing previously that I could continue to to still do so I literally just swam because because I could (laughs) yeah that's that's really interesting I sort of get this sense of swimming being this kind of in the storm almost like the even though things 
were clearly not going well and going wrong. Something was actually really inclusive and actually you could just carry on doing that. At that stage, were you still able to swim as before or were you kind of modifying your stroke and that kind of thing? From what I remember, I just swam as obviously I had to did have to modify the sessions because I couldn't do any kick. But apart from that, I just sort of tried to to keep going as best as I could really. I'm pretty sure I must have got a bit slower because obviously I kind of had half my body working. But um, no, at that point, I just tried to keep on going as, as normal as I could really. Okay, so we've got this sore leg that doesn't go away. You're on crutches, you're still swimming, and things are getting harder. How did things progress from there, Hope? So I went into Rigmore Hospital in, in Inverness and so I must have been 12 then and the, I remember seeing a paediatric orthopaedic specialist and he said oh we're going to take you in and uh, we'll go to theatre we'll do x y and z you're going to stay in and have a week's worth of intense uh, physio and then after that you'll come out running and I was like oh great like sign me up because obviously as a 12 year old and a doctor says we're going to do this this and this and then it's going to result in being able to not just walk but being able to run obviously you kind of believe them and then so I went in and um, had everything done blah 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 and after a few days they kind of I wasn't progressing anywhere really and certainly not what they what they were anticipating and then that's when they kind of started scratching the head and they're like oh this this might be a bit more serious than what, than what they first thought so then I got referred down to York Hill Children's Hospital um, in Glasgow and it wasn't until I got went down there that they diagnosed me with reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which is now formally known as complex regional pain syndrome. So that was the kind of first time that I was given a diagnosis. Well, that sounds like um, a lot of information for a 12-year-old to try and, try and process, right? A year and a bit earlier, you're running around with your mates doing a thousand activities a day and then like you've actually got this really serious condition and we're not sure how to treat it. I know it was a long time ago. What was that like for you, I guess, confronting that news? What was that like for you? So I think when I first got diagnosed when I was in Glasgow, I was so happy. Like I just felt so happy because I'd spent, by this point, I'd spent about a year with doctors not knowing what was wrong with me. So that then when they actually said, oh, like this is what's wrong with you, I was like, oh, phew, because like, people started saying oh like you're just making it up it's all in your head so then when finally somebody said oh this is what it is I just felt really happy and then they said to me and my mum they're like oh just don't google it obviously we'd never heard of the condition so then of course the first thing you do is you go home and you kind of look it up and then you kind of go from being happy that you've that doctor knows what's wrong with you and then you're like oh okay but it's not a great thing to have so yeah it was a bit of mixed emotions, really, I guess. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I think doctors say that a lot these days. Whatever you do, you don't do not Google this. You don't want to know. <laughs> Looking back now, do you wish you hadn't Googled it? Um, not really, to be honest. So even at, the, at this point, obviously coming from, from the, the Highlands Wi-Fi, even now isn't always amazing. So I actually Googled it more when I was in school. Um, I wasn't. I couldn't really participate in in PE and things like that. <clears throat> so this this one day I went. I was in the the school library and I remember looking it up online and I read this article about this 
women who had the same condition that I had and it spread to like all four of her limbs it started spreading to her internal organs she she couldn't do anything really she was stuck in a house for years and I just went to the toilets and I was crying and I was like that is not going to be me like absolutely no chance is that going to happen to me yeah it's um a little bit of information is a dangerous thing right in the wrong hands and yeah you know, even that was a number of years ago now, you're obviously no longer 12. Um, I can still feel that, like that sense of that is not going to be my future. I, I, I can't entertain that idea. <laughs> what happened next? What did the doctors do? What was the journey? Because I know it was a difficult one, wasn't it? Yeah, so with CRPS, there's, well, there's not a cure. Um, there's still not a cure. And even now, doctors are still trying to understand A, why it happens and B, how to treat it so there are treatments available but it's sort of a case of you can try and see if it helps and but it affects everybody every kind of patient uh, differently so I basically spent a lot of time in and out of hospital in, in Glasgow we tried to make it during mainly during school holidays so that I tried not to miss quite as much school I still did miss quite a bit of school and I was quite far behind so yeah we tried lots and lots and lots of different treatments and it was basically my second home, like in in the hospital. And then when I was 14, I started kind of thinking just in my head, I was like, I think I'd be better off having my leg amputated. But I knew for a fact that it was against the guidelines for the condition. And as well, obviously I was a 14 year old in a kid's hospital and I just didn't think anybody would really listen to me. So I just kind of kept it to myself until I was 16. And then when I was 16, I was like, right, well, if I don't ask this, then it's never going to happen. So then that was when I first asked doctors if they would consider amputation. And I think I was, I was just a bit nervous about it because I didn't, I've always looked at amputation as a really positive thing and a way to get on with my life and everything. And I was just a bit worried that the doctors would only see it as me looking at it as a negative thing. But for me, it was always a positive decision. So this is, one of the most amazing things that I think about you whenever whenever I think about you is at 14, you decided, I think we need to take this leg, which is a pretty serious decision. You don't make that lightly, do you? And you then had the courage to pursue that. And at 16 said, listen, this is what I want. Did you have to really convince them? How, how hard was it to convince the doctors to, I guess, to go against the current guidance and, and to support your wishes? Yeah, it was so difficult because obviously I hadn't even told a lot of my family either. So, I mean, I told them, I still, I can still picture in my head the day that I kind of sat my mum and, and dad down and said to them that I was going to ask the doctors. We were in Frank and Benny's in Silverburn in Glasgow before, just before going to York Hill for an appointment. And I said, look, I'm going to ask them to amputate my leg today, um, which I'm sure obviously that they, as parents, didn't really want to hear that but then equally they like my mum and dad my brother they're the people that know me the best and they kind of knew how much it affected me and how much an amputation could then mean that I could do more with my life and um, but no the doctors were quite hard to especially obviously still being under being under paediatrics was really difficult and I still ended up kind of spending I think eight weeks that summer in the hospital getting lots of different treatments that still didn't work and then, yeah, so I was, 
I think by the time I actually got the amputation, well, first event, just trying to find a doctor who would see me was like almost impossible because they would just look at my notes. They would see the name of the condition and the fact that I wanted an amputation and they would just run for the hills. Like they wouldn't even want to, to look at me. So even just seeing anybody in person was like so difficult. So then eventually I ended up having to find my own surgeon. So I just researched online and I found this this guy and I kind of went down for a private initial consultation and he was absolutely amazing and he was the first kind of medic who looked at me and kind of, to me anyway, saw sense and he was like, you know, even if you're still left with the same pain and the remaining bit of your leg, you can still, you know, you can still get up in your crutches and you can do so much more because by this point I was totally confined to a wheelchair then the NHS turned around and said that they wouldn't fund the, the amputation, even though that we had a surgeon who was on board. So then I ended up having to raise £10,000 to get it done privately. It's it's an incredible story, Hope. So you decided at 14 this needs to be done, then spent the latter part of your teenage years, when most of us are frankly being idiots, you spent your time having probably awful, really painful treatment convincing doctors and then they say oh no we're not doing it and you then went and just crowdfunded ten thousand pounds to get it done that's that's unbelievable yeah yeah my goodness <laughs> so it's obviously been a pretty dark conversation so far but eventually you find this incredible <laughs> doctor who i just got this sense that he he just really he got you he listened to you and he got you in a way maybe other yeah. doctors hadn't just appreciated it what was it like waking up after that surgery and looking down and not seeing your leg as it was before. Yeah, it was amazing. It was such a long, difficult journey just to get to that point. And the operation actually got postponed seven times kind of before it actually happened. So kind of psychologically, that was really difficult as well. You'd, you get sent a date and, and then you'd be getting ready to go to the hospital and then you get a phone call to say it's not happening. And that just kept on happening time and time again. So even like the door and the morning off the operation, like I just kept on saying, they're like, are you sure it's happening? Is it definitely, definitely going ahead? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like just chill out. <clears throat> I just remember waking up and I was just so happy and um, I had a blanket over my full body and that it sounds such a small thing, but that hadn't happened to me for like ten, nearly 10 years because my leg was so painful. I couldn't have blankets touching my leg. So yeah, straight away it was it was already like a really positive thing, and then the nurse put my 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 notes down on my bed, and I just started laughing because I was like, "Oh, my leg used to be there." Do you know if it's one of the best things about you? You do frequently <laughs> make jokes about missing a leg when we first met you. That that was like a pretty frequent <laughs> thing. Of hang on, guys, I've only got one leg here. Just just calm down, right? You know. Okay, wow. So surgery went really well. You are missing the leg that caused you so much pain and heartache and agony. What happened next? What, what, what did you go and do? What, what were the? Where did that lead you next? Um. Yeah. So I just had the operation. Kind of obviously had to recover from that. I actually started university four weeks later. So I went straight into third year at Edinburgh Napier University and. Yeah, just sort of like rocked up. So I think I still had some like stitches and stuff in my leg. So it was just kind of trying to get to grips with university as well as kind of rehab and then learning to walk with a prosthetic. And 
all that kind of good stuff. And then getting back into sport as well. I was just waiting for my um, everything to heal up before I could get back into the pool. So that was such a great moment once I could get back into the pool because the pool to me has always been like such a kind of, it's just been like freedom um, where you don't have to worry about a wheelchair or crutches or anything like that. So yeah, I was so happy to get get back in the pool and, and then also kind of start to try different sports that I couldn't do beforehand. I love what you said there. You said the pool's like freedom because of course you're, you're weightless and no pain. <laughs> what was it like swimming for the first time? So previously you had a two-legged kick, right? And now you're just single leg kick or a leg and a half kick, I guess. What was what was that like? Or were you just so happy to be able to do sport again? Yeah, it was. It just felt like really nice just to be back in the water, I think. Um, obviously my swimming kind of technique, I feel like, has changed quite a bit from obviously being a able-bodied kid and then I swam but neither my legs worked and then I went back in and went from kind of not having any kick to then having one side of my body a lot heavier than the than the other so but yeah it was absolutely fine and learning to dive as well that was something that I couldn't do beforehand so the first dive was absolutely terrible it was like this massive big belly flop it was horrific <laughs> but yeah it was good <laughs> but it sounds like you didn't really mind you were just so pleased to be able to do it right yeah. Okay, I am so glad I asked you to tell that story because we've obviously met, we've chatted before, but I've never really heard that story properly. So I'm um, just so grateful. Thank you so much. Not long after that, we got to meet. You were finishing up at uni and stuff. Um, yeah. How did you find your way into canoeing and that fateful day when we chucked tennis balls at you? <laughs> um. Yes. Yeah, so I knew a girl through swimming who after Rio Paralympics she switched over to canoeing and she shared an advert that British Canoeing were looking for for new talent athletes and I just saw it and I thought I could give that a bash and um, I came down to Nottingham for an assessment which went which went well but then they kind of said that obviously because I was based in Scotland and I was living in Edinburgh and I was at uni in Edinburgh and Scottish Canoeing is based in Edinburgh so it made a lot more sense to start to learn through Scottish canoeing rather than having to travel down to British canoeing in Nottingham so that's kind of how, how it started and and yeah <laughs> and the rest they say is history right <laughs> so yeah, yeah I, I don't want to steal your thunder so you had this amazing progression into the sport where you went from well a fair amount of falling in right and just figuring this whole thing out and how do you steer when you've only got you know, one foot and all the rest. And we, we we got there, right? What's that journey been like in canoeing as you have progressed from those tender first few days to, to where, where you are now? Maybe tell us a bit about what it is you do now. Yeah, I think the first time we met, I fell in. And I just remember coming out and it was absolutely freezing. I think the canal had only just, like, defrosted. And I just remember you, like, I was absolutely Baltic. And you just gave me a latte and a flapjack and then I got back in the boat in the afternoon. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for the latte and the flapjack and not. Yeah, so my journey into canoeing has been like really, really good. It's I started with. I think to start with, it was just to, for me. It was just a really fun thing to go and do. I really like being outside. So being outside and still being kind of on the water, hopefully most of the time rather than in it. Um, it just really suited me. I think so. 
I didn't really have too much time to kind of commit to the sport to start with because I was still swimming and I was working and I was doing my dissertation and everything. So it was just quite a nice chilled thing to go and do. And then I guess it started to kind of once I finished uni and everything, I guess I started to kind of maybe take it more seriously. And then I came down to Nottingham for a week to train with the, it's like a centralised programme. So to train with the, the team in Nottingham and and then that was when I got asked to move down and kind of commit full time. And to be perfectly honest with you, it was sort of like, it was, I was like, it's an amazing opportunity, but I was sort of in two minds because I really wanted to do it. But equally, I felt really bad. I was like, I don't really want to leave Scotland. <laughs> um, like I just felt like all oh, Scotch Canadian were just doing such a good job. I got on so well with Ant on the coach and everything. And I was like, I don't want to just leave like straight away. Um, but then I just sort of decided that as it is a centralised programme and like it's literally the best team in the world and has been kind of since the, the sport started really. So it was, I would kind of be silly to turn it down. And I just decided to kind of commit full time and, and move down to Nottingham. Yeah, it's, it's like the best example ever of a coach doing his job so well that he literally lost his athletes. So because he'd made such good progress with you and you'd worked so hard and progressed so quickly, you then joined the World Class Performance Programme, which is, of course, what we were trying to get you to do. But it was a bit like, oh, we only had her six months or four months and she had these times that were like World Championship qualifying times and we're like, well, she better go to Nottingham then, didn't she? So... Um, it was yeah a good job by Anton to get you there so quickly. Obviously, we've had a very disrupted 2020. We're hoping for a less disrupted 2021. So your first proper racing season was, what, 2018 to 2019. Do you want to tell us about what that season was like? Yeah, so 2018 to 2019 was my first kind of full season within the sport. And I was kind of, I didn't really have too many kind of expectations or pressure myself, but I did want to try and qualify for as many international races as I could. So I ended up getting selected for all of, all of them. And so I went to European Championships and the World Cup in, in Poland. Um, so that was my kind of first taste of international racing. And I managed to come fourth in both of that, those. And then I managed to get selected for the World Championships, which were in Hungary and came fifth there which was amazing and Hungary is such it's like the birthplace of sprint canoeing so like Hungarians go mental about canoeing which is good to see and obviously now Tokyo 2021 as it now is well we hope maybe we'll see I guess a loose prospect for you a while ago you've had another year though what are your thoughts on uh, trying to qualify for the Paralympic Games later this year yeah so I guess from after Worlds in um, August 2019 uh, so we actually went out, we got to go out to Tokyo in 2019 for the test event and we got to go to, to Kiba where the holding camp is hopefully going to be. Um, so we went there and then we spent a week in, in Tokyo as well, which was absolutely amazing. And like the Japanese people are just the politest people I've ever met, like anywhere. They're so lovely and they're so excited. So I just like, I just really wanted to go back there. It's such an amazing place. So then, yeah, I just got back into training and was training really hard for selection for the for the games, which, so selection was supposed to be the end of April 2020, but then obviously in March the pandemic happened and everything kind of obviously stopped. Um, and now we're just back into training and trying to get 
selection in April next year um, for hopefully the game's going ahead next year. Yeah, cool. It might be of interest just to our listeners, Project 9, this concept that exists very much at the centre of the British Para programme. Do you maybe just want to explain a bit about what Project 9 is, given that you're obviously trying to qualify for the Games, but your teammates are also trying to qualify for the Games as well? Yeah, so Project 9 is it was sort of one of those things. It's It's been going on for longer than what I've been in the sport. So I kept on seeing, even before I moved to Nottingham, on social media and everything, I kept on seeing, like, hashtag Project 9. I was like, what is that? Uh, so for for the Tokyo Paralympics, there's going to be nine canoeing events. And our kind of goal as a squad is to have nine British athletes in those events. So a British athlete qualify for, for every single one of the events available. So to do that, last year we had to, to come top six in the world to get automatic qualification. And we managed to do that out in seven out of the nine, the nine events. And then we still got a second chance opportunity to just pick up the, the other two spots, which I've full confidence that we'll be able to do kind of as a team. So yeah, hopefully have the biggest team possible. I had a real privilege of being able to come down and well, hang out with you and, and your, your training partners and just this real sense of team that although you're racing against each other on a daily basis, you're trying to help each other get better. I just, I think it's a really, it's a really unique bit of culture in, in UK sport. And I just, just think it's really wonderful to see. So I wanted just to put a pin in that. <laughs> Obviously we are rooting for you and hoping for the very best for the next 12 months, what, four years, whatever, into Paris and beyond, who knows. Looking back on your journey growing up and all the things you went through, got any advice, thoughts for young athletes and also young people with a disability, anything you would share with them from your journey? I would say for like athletes in general, I would say try to not put too much pressure on yourself. There's something that I've definitely been kind of guilty of doing and kind of looking back now, I, I think I probably, I did enjoy what I was doing, but I probably would have enjoyed it even more if I hadn't put quite so much pressure on yourself. So yeah, I think not put too much pressure on yourself and just enjoy the journey and like I'm an athlete who absolutely loves training. Like I, I actually prefer training to racing, which I know to some athletes just sound absolute. That sounds absolutely bonkers because they're like, well, like racing's the fun part. But for me, it's the day to day training that I absolutely love. And I think if you can just enjoy the process, then you're going to enjoy that the outcome so much more. And I think in terms of somebody with a disability or a condition or anything like that. I think one thing that really helped me was like going way back to when I was probably 12 or 13 and I first got diagnosed. I remember meeting the first person who had the same condition as me. We were in hospital together at the same time with just one other patient in the same, the same ward and the same bed bay. She was like, just, we're just at opposite ends of, of the, the bay. And just the first time that we spoke to each other, it was just like, I just felt like lighter after the conversation because having somebody who knows exactly what you're going through, especially when it's quite a rare condition, was just like, just so good. And as well, like my mum and her mum, they felt the same thing because they didn't experience anything that like that before either. Um, so I think just having somebody to, to talk to um, who can appreciate what you're going through and, and stuff is, is really positive. And for me, once kind of going through the amputation side I was really lucky that 
I knew quite a lot of people with amputations kind of just being involved with parasport and then also I work quite a lot with Finding Your Feet, the, the charity that supports amputees and like they were so good, especially when I when I first started out as an as an amputee, if you like, because obviously there's things that you, you never think about, even though you've I've kind of been wanting an amputation for five and a half years previously. There's there's things that you know, this the sockets and your leg never fitting properly and you like falling off because it sweats and it just falls off in the middle of nowhere and yeah. There's things like that where you know, you just don't think about, but just being able to talk to people really help. Oh thanks Hope. Yeah. Do you know it's um one of my abiding memories of that first day meeting you was after you'd fallen in, you the prosthetic you were using, you then couldn't use it the rest of the day. And Richard Cheatham likes to tell this story as great. So we now have an athlete who only has access to one leg. And he said it was just the best thing from his learning point of view. The other thing that happened later on that day, we were all messing about on Swiss balls trying to do core stuff. And you went, this isn't fair, guys. You've all got two legs. So I tucked my foot underneath my bum to try and simulate it and then immediately fell off the Swiss ball. And I was like, great. So now you have a little bit of empathy of how much harder this is and you just haven't thought about it. It was was really (laughs) great. There was a lot in there. Yeah, just the idea of managing pressure as a young athlete. It's easy to put lots of pressure on yourself. You want to be successful and just, just managing that. And the more athletes I talk to, the more successful athletes tell me that. But this idea of just people that get you, so that doctor that got you, that just understood where you were coming from, could see your point of view and just got you as you were. And just that other girl or um, who also knew what it was like to be you and to be in that position and for their for your mums both to get that as well. I think that's just, yeah, it's a really important thing that, think it's washed over sometimes i i found that really humbling to listen to your conversation earlier and listen to things you shared so thank you so much um definitely i've been affected by listening to hearing that story where can we follow you you talked about finding your feet where, where can we follow you and where can we find follow your feet where can we find out more about them so my instagram is hope garden underscore and i think my twitter is the same but not much happens there so i probably stick to instagram <laughs> Uh, yeah, and Find Your Feet is, you can find them on website, uh, findyourfeet.net, I think, and then all their social medias as well. It's obviously quite a unique name, so if you just put Find Your Feet into Google, it'll definitely pop up. I will, of course, stick those in the description under the podcast. Hope, I am so, so grateful to you for your time. I know you're busy and you're training hard and um, doing your best to stay safe and out of trouble at the moment. Just, yeah, really grateful for, for your time and, and for sharing your, your journey so, so freely. Evan, I hope you enjoyed it. That's the start of um, season two and, and hope has started to set the bar very, very high indeed for our future guests. <laughs> Do keep out an eye out for future podcasts and hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. And obviously at the moment, everyone, please stay safe. Thanks for having me. <laughs>